prophecy of Amos chapter 2. While you're turning, I think I announced a part of this on Wednesday, but we're getting final word in from the ministers and the trickling in. But uh, Lord willing, uh, we're going to have two of our men on the Lord's Day prior to the minister's week of prayer, so that's two weeks from today. Uh, Logan Elder will be, Lord willing, bringing the word on the Lord's Day morning. And then Armin Tomassian, who ministers in Greenville, is going to be here with us to preach in the evening. We tried to have Armin a few times over the years. It hasn't worked out, so I twisted his arm a little bit. I don't know if he owes me anything or not, but if he had, I would have found it. But anyway, but uh, he's going to travel on the afternoon and be with us on the evening for that Lord's Day. And then the Lord's Day following, um, Larry Saunders, Dr. Saunders from our church in Toronto, is going to stay over and be with us for the morning service. And as we mentioned, Dr. Pollock, who's the clerk of Presbytery, is going to be preaching Wednesday night at the banquet. So we've tried to get it. So this year with uh, the week of prayer, often the men are in on Monday and out on Friday. We tried to get uh, some uh, fellowship time and uh, some good preaching in while the men were at least close by. So we're looking forward to that season together and certainly ask you to pray that the Lord will be with us for all of those meetings and for the men's meetings as well. I want this evening to begin reading in the sixth verse of Amos 2. We read this verse in the close of our reading last Lord's Day evening. The whole of the first chapter after Amos introduces himself is this sequence of judgments that are pronounced against various surrounding nations. It comes to the seventh of these, and it's a judgment that's pronounced against Judah, the southern kingdom. Of course, Amos' audience was Israel, the northern kingdom. And so the eighth record and pronouncement of judgment is the one that falls upon Israel. We begin reading that, and we'll read from verse 6 down to the end of chapter 2. So Amos 2 And verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. A man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt, led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets, and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, 
saith the Lord. Well, amen. Linda reading, again trusting the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we come at the close of this Sabbath day and we ask that we might, as we gather again around and under the preaching of Your Word, that You might minister to us from it. Lord, that You'll give us wisdom. We read of prophecies and of events and sins that occurred centuries ago. And yet, how applicable they are to our times. We sense, Lord, in many ways that among these minor prophets, Amos is one whose words and whose pronouncements against sin touch very near to our current context and our nation. And we pray that you will bless us then and give us wisdom and grace in opening and in hearing the word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day evening as we introduced this prophet, we were reminded to look at the poetic formula that he uses in the introduction of all eight of those pronouncements of judgment. It is not so much, as it were, a numbering of three sins and then four for these various nations. It is not so much a specific numbering as it is a description of sins that are full, sins that overflow. And when we considered something of these seven previous pronouncements before the eighth, which was his own audience, I wanted to draw out that in many ways this opening chapter is an easy catalog of sins with regard to Gentile nations. Israel, his audience, could hear. They could understand and perhaps say an amen. Yeah, those are some bad people. And it would all be true. But the problem is, and maybe this is Amos' method, we don't know, the Lord doesn't introduce us to any hidden methodology, but were it to gain the attention of Israel, were they to give an assent to the worthiness of judgment that these other nations had, well, perhaps that opens the door for them to consider something of their own nation being worthy of judgment, their own nation having an overflowing of sin. Well, I say in our times, it's easy for us to look around at the world, look around at the Gentiles of our age, and maybe hear pronouncements against their sins, sermons against their sins, and all true. But don't let us shrink back from examining our own hearts perhaps more applicable, the church of our nation, church being used in a broader sense than we often use it. But how many name the name of Christ? How many churches, how many denominations in the last century really abandoned their fidelity to the Word, abandoned their belief in the truth and even in the inspiration of the Word itself, and abandoned the gospel. The church in such a context doesn't merely become part of the problem. It becomes the biggest part of the problem. 
And says, our Lord said, if the light that's in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, I think this, in some ways, is just a prelude to Amos's parallel to our own times. His exposure of the sins of the Gentiles is one thing. His exposure, his shining the light on the sins of the church is another. And tonight what I'd like to do is to begin and just go through the prophecy itself. There's a a point in the prophecy where Amos begins to unfold a succession of visions. We, Lord willing, will come to that next time. But I want to come, we began to approach this in their concluding thoughts last time when we came to to the end of chapter 2 where he speaks about the privileges that Israel enjoyed. We spoke a little of its background, actually a lot of the background of this book last time. It's a season of prosperity. It's a season of calm between the competing nations, as it were. And Israel and Judah both have enriched themselves with the trade routes. They are so prosperous. They have winter houses. They have summer houses. The calamities that we read of in chapter 4 that just come in rapid succession, almost like Hurricanes and earthquakes, one of them was an earthquake, don't seem to sober them enough to even pause and listen to Amos. Their prosperity seemed to save them from everything. But what were their sins? Tonight I just want for us to survey five categories, if you will, of sin in Amos. And as I said, we anticipated this one slightly last time. But the first one I would suggest to you, really an overriding theme in the book, is the abuse of privileges. The abuse of privileges. We read in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 last week and this week as well, God had prospered them. He had given them tangible earthly blessings. He had given them the land. He would cast out the Amorite from before them. He had placed them in that land that physically speaking, militarily speaking, in every other way, it couldn't have been theirs. But the iniquity of the Amorites was full. God was pleased even to use Israel in the judgment of these peoples and grant them the land. Alongside, though, of those tangible earthly blessings, we found in verse 12 that they had spiritual blessings. They had been given the word. And of course that underscores so much of the book as we've spoken already of the famine of the word that is so striking in the 8th chapter. And that verse that arrested the attention of this young man. But we come to that second verse in chapter 3. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God's special acknowledgement of this people, all the blessings, earthly and spiritual, that that brought with it, these were privileges that Israel enjoyed. These were privileges that Israel abused. When I think of the parallel to our times, Certainly we don't look at ourselves as a nation, as Israel, and those particular blessings of the Exodus and all of that we know. We don't possess inspired prophets. 
We don't have Nazarites today. But yet in very real ways, the nations of what we call the Christian West, it's not really a thing anymore. We used to even speak, it used to be spoken, I guess we could say better, of Christendom. How the gospel had permeated Europe. Seasons of corruption to be sure. But certainly since the Reformation, light that has been shining and yet has been suppressed. We have had privileges, tremendous privileges. But as Israel clearly These privileges have been abused. The second topic or summary I would see put on display here is a mistreatment of the poor. If you look a few verses with me, chapter 2, we read these together. But verse 6 and 7, he says here, Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. They pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. Turn aside the way of the meek. It speaks here of this immorality that we'll come back to. They lay down upon clothes laid to pledge. We can't really imagine this in something of our prosperity, but in the ancient world, clothing was more valuable than it is today because it was more expensive to make, harder to come by. Remember Achan's sin. Oh, the gold, bar gold, we can understand that. Clothes? You took time to steal clothes? Yes. And sometimes people would use items of clothing as their, what's the word? I'm losing the economic term. Collateral for loans. One thing God had said would be true in Israel, even clothes that were taken as collateral were to be given back to the person at night So they wouldn't be cold. Then they could bring their cloak back and lay it down for the collateral again through the next day. Well, the mistreatment of the poor came and we're not giving you the collateral back. You might not bring it back in the morning. Just be cold tonight. That'll teach you. And you follow on if you turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you kind of Bashan cows that are in the mountain of Samaria which oppress the poor which crush the needy which say to their masters bring and let us drink skip over to chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 for as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor and you take from him burdens of wheat you've built houses of hewn stone but ye shall not dwell in them You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Here, poor, treated ill. And overturn, if you would, to chapter 8. 8 verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy even to make the poor of the land to fail. Here's an interesting text. Saying, verse 5, When will the new moon be gone? That would have been a feast day. That we may sell corn. And the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat. 
making the ephah small and the shekel great, falsifying the balances thereof by deceit. Ephah would be a measurement, like a pound of coffee. Shekel is the coin. Uh, well, the, the pound is a little shy, and the shekel, well, you better give us, you know, about 120% of what it was last week. These are oppressions that prevail. And as you read through the prophecy, and we haven't highlighted them all, but just shown sufficiently through the book, it was a problem. It was a great sin. One of the commentaries I have on Amos actually takes this particular sin and it's being highlighted so frequently in the book and he calls Amos the the prophet of social justice. Now this is a book written back in the 50s and there's been some redefining of terms along the way for sure. But I must confess that as I was first introduced to Amos and as a teenager and a college student looking at this book with so many applications for our day and so many things that were hammered into my own head and heart, that this is a part of Amos that almost troubled me a little bit. Because I'd grown up hearing the previous generations speak about the rise of liberalism Part of liberalism and unbelief in the church included what was called the social gospel. And the church was trying to meet these needs of the hungry and the poor and all these things, which it's not wrong for us to meet. But I thought, is, is Amos soft? Is he a liberal? Is he just concerned about poverty? Aren't there more important spiritual things to be concerned about? Like I said, I just kind of, well, yeah, he talks about that, but I was digging for the other stuff. Well, let us understand that this stuff, this mistreatment of the poor, these examples in Israel of all places of social injustice and real social oppression were evidences of spiritual problems. You can't have a heart that's right with God and understanding the truth of God and do this kind of thing to your neighbor. Liberals twisted scripture and they wanted to feed the hungry and never give the sinner the gospel. Sometimes the conservative church, the pendulum went the other way. We're going to try and give the gospel to people and we'll ignore the social needs. One of the things our brother Bill Jones has been burdened about in ministry in New York City. But you see, and some of my own thinking was helped with other scriptures to come in line. What does John say in his first epistle? about people that say they love God and yet they don't love their brother? He says they're liars. How can a man love God whom he's not seen and not be loving his neighbor whom he has seen? You see, the fact is that Israel had so lost out, if you will, in following the first table of the law that now it had spilled over and they were openly sinning in those visible ways against their neighbor with regard to the second table of the law. It's like when apostasy really 
gets down to the bottom, people don't even care anymore about sins that are right in their face. These hearts that are so hardened to the poor among God's people. Evidence of hearts that were already hardened to their God. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to sell the building and stop meeting and donate all the money to some charitable cause. But where are our hearts? Are there those indebted to us that we would happily mistreat? Are there those we could walk over and not care? Amos is a prophet that was given to preach against social injustices. And I think this is something that can be manifested even in small, tangible, practical ways. How do we treat those, say, that serve us? I'm of the mindset Christians ought to be big tippers. You know, you want to leave a tract and a really skimpy tip. It just doesn't seem to set quite well. I, I digress a little, but the applications can go in ways that are not even as extreme as what we've seen here and the withholding of a garment on a cold night. But these things I say are just symptomatic. And you have a culture, as we'll see in a moment, that has gone into such depths of evil and sin. They don't care anymore about their neighbor. That's their problem. I'm enjoying life too much to worry about them. But a third category of sin in Israel is the perversion of worship. We've read already that of the prophets that God raised up for them, they commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. With regard to the Nazarites, they, well, let's give them wine to drink. Let's bring them down to our level and let's, let's just get things squared away that way. But turn, if you would, to chapter 4. We have illustration here again of Worship being perverted. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning in your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Here is an example of something that, quite frankly, we must always be careful of in our own lives and experience. There aren't a lot of places in life where sarcasm can be the practice of a humble, godly heart. But yet the God of heaven stoops to using sarcasm here against Israel. What was Bethel? 
You remember Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that caused Israel to sin, set up an altar, the worship of the golden calf, the worship of Jehovah, one at Dan, one at Bethel. His purpose was in many ways political. He said, you know, these ten tribes that have followed me, if they go down to church for these pilgrim feasts like we're all supposed to, they're going to go to the temple and, well, they're going to worship there. They're going to, they're going to rub shoulders with the children of Judah. And, well, maybe we can lose some political power and clout. We can't do that. Let's worship in our own way, in our own place. And that refrain through the rest of Israel's kings. He followed in the ways and the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that made Israel to sin. Well, that was at Bethel. God says, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to church. Yeah, come on in. And he shines a light on the fact that their worship, even their worship in the name of the true God, of Jehovah, was something that was unworthy. Something that ultimately, if you look over in chapter 5, we read, well, it goes beyond sarcasm. Read from verse 21, chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. You remember the odor of incense that would arise as a sweet savor into the nostrils of God. Though, verse 22, ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. That one to me is quite interesting. I will confess I don't know if reluctantly is the right word. There are many among the Lord's people that use music that I don't think they should. I'm a pretty picky guy on that. I can take all of the hymnals, blue, black, red. I guess the supplement we did, but I could pick apart stuff in all of them. Uh, I don't know that that one's worthy, and I don't know that that one's really worthy. Some of it's my opinion, some of it I'm willing to defend, but I leave that to be. There are those that have slightly different worship styles than we do that are faithful, that are preaching truth, have godly hearts. But I look at the bigger picture. I look at the condition of the church in the broad evangelical orbit, in the charismatic orbit and beyond. And I wonder, I wonder how often in the courts of heaven it would be uttered, take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Israelites were meeting in God's name. 
They were focusing their attention on the true God, not Baal. Baal worship had been a piece of their history. They'd been struggling, but that's not what's going on at Bethel. And God says, I hate your church. I despise your feast days. Even the solemn assembly. Perversion of worship. This is amazing language. It is some of the most striking language in the minor prophets. We'll come to a little more in a moment. But I say it's sobering for our times. Fourthly, we come to see another category of sin. And that is opposition to God's messengers and prophets. We've seen it in chapter 2 where they're telling the prophets not to prophesy. Look in chapter 3, if you will, verses 7 and 8. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear. The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is Amos' own testimony. And yet he's among those that is commanded to be quiet. Turn to chapter 7. Here we have, beginning in verse 10, a striking illustration in Amos' own ministry and history that is put before us. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. Now there's a nice spin. This is a farmer from Judah. He's preaching. He's pointing out Israel's sins. Clear transgressions of the law of God. How are we going to fix this? Let's get him in trouble with the authorities. Uh, King, there's this guy preaching. He's conspired against you. Have we read anything in his messages so far about an insurrection to overthrow Jeroboam? Make Amos king of the northern tribes? He's been preaching against sin. He's been calling the people back to the truth of God's Word. And I'm taken with the last phrase of verse 10. The land is not able to bear all His words. And you read on here, Amaziah says to Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, For it is the king's chapel, it is the king's court. And answered Amos and said to Amaziah, you think of the soberness of these words, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city. 
Thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. Remember Amos, as we saw last time, prophesying about 760 B.C. 722, less than 40 years later. These words are fulfilled and more. Opposition to truth. You think about how easy the spin could be to not only that political lie, he's conspired against your throne, but, I mean, do we have to listen to this? This farmer from the south, you can almost see something of that in our times. Some hayseed from down the south who's backward thinking. Israel's opposition to truth. All the while believing that they are privileged people which they had enjoyed privileges, but they'd abused them. And it comes into our last thought tonight. Fifthly, a misunderstanding of their position. Amos is, as we said, among the earliest of the prophets. Joel had preceded him and spoken of a day of the Lord. From Joel's time, certainly from that in the previous century down to Amos, we can understand that the day of the Lord had become common parlance, if you will, in their religious expression. You study the theme, it's, it's, a, it's a season of God's intervention, of God's coming in judgment. Ultimately, all the days of the Lord that we read of historically are harbingers of the ultimate final day of the Lord in which Christ returns, destroys the man of sin and his armies and those that have not loved the truth and establishes His kingdom. Well, Israel is familiar with the terminology. It's part of church. What do we read? Amos 5, verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. That's a difficult phrase to consider. Shouldn't we desire a day of God's intervention? The problem was with Israel is they had so rewritten the prophecy books, if you will, that the day of the Lord simply included God finally squashing the rest of the Gentiles and giving Israel the world. There's no gospel in it. There's no repentance, no entering the kingdom themselves through Christ in it. And so Amos says, Woe to you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. I say here is a misunderstanding 
of their position. They had pedigree. They had a history of church membership that went back generations. They weren't Gentiles. They were God-fearing people. And they had lost the truth. They had bartered it for their own earthly prosperity and pleasure. They had gone so far as they couldn't see their own immorality had come to the point of paralleling and even exceeding the sins of the Gentiles. We spoke about that man and his father lying on those clothes laid to pledge by the altar. Some suggest this is cultic prostitution, which was common in the ancient world among the ungodly. Some have suggested, as I was reading, that not all the elements of that are on display here, but for a father to assume and take favors from a daughter-in-law, well, that's okay. Here's Israel sinning in such obvious ways, morally, ecclesiastically, the oppression of their own brothers and sisters. And thinking, yeah, when the Lord comes, those other people are going to get it. How much more blind can you be? Israel is going to be more accountable. Again, one of the strongest statements of God's election of the nation of Israel is found in this prophecy. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Or as our Lord said to the cities of Galilee, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. You've sinned against light. You have suppressed the truth as it is in Jesus. And the Lord says to them through this farmer from Judah, Woe to you that desire the day of the Lord. When God intervenes, well, judgment's going to begin at the house of God. And I close if you turn back to the fourth chapter. Therefore, we read verse 12, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. That's a giant text. It's one of those texts that has the Bible for its context. I've preached in a church, one of our churches in Northern Ireland, and it has that phrase from the text etched in the wall behind the pulpit, prepare to meet thy God. It's a worthy call. But we think of it often with regard to the ungodly, the unchurched, you need to get ready to meet God. 
But in context, the phrase Amos utters to God's people is you need to prepare to meet your God. You're going to find out what your God is really like. Because He's not going to put up with your hypocrisy. He's not going to sanction your self-righteousness. He's not going to turn a blind eye to these whole categories of sin that you're guilty of. No, when you meet your God, when that day of the Lord comes, judgment's going to begin with you. And I say this is a sobering thing to me. Many in the West have I say almost trivialized some of their prophetic schemes. Now I know there are many, dare I say, multitudes of godly people, humble people against which these cries of sin that we against sin we find in Amos do not apply. But there's some ungodly that have been touched by prophetic schemes that want to suggest, well, we're gone before any troubles come. Amos talked about an earthquake. Some suggest there's about three times scattered through the book, as he says in the introduction, he prophesied in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We read in Kings of an earthquake in the reign of Uzziah, Isaiah and the contemporaries. Zechariah, it must have been a bad earthquake because Zechariah, a post-exilic prophet, centuries later, talks about, remember that earthquake? People fleeing away naked in that day. Houses and the lintels of the doorpost shaking, Amos will speak of. Mindset. And someone can persistently sin, not show any understanding or experience of the gospel at all, and say, well, God's on my side, and I'm out of here before any troubles come. The sober thing to think, people that desire the day of the Lord... And being outside of Christ. Imagining themselves to be numbered among God's people. And judgment falling first on them. Amos, I say, is a prophet to a people centuries ago. But the parallels to our times are many and striking. And to have the situation be of such a nature that God even looks particularly at the leaders of the people and speaks of hating their worship. Sarcastically calling them to continue on in it. But the day of the Lord will be darkness to them and not light. 
It is a sober time in Israel, to be sure. That prosperous, self-centered people were less than a generation away from a judgment that to this day has yet to be reversed. They should have listened instead of telling the prophets not to prophesy. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask tonight you will give us grace and give us wisdom in reading sermons to a people of a bygone age. And yet, Lord, give us wisdom and humility not to think there's nothing in those sermons that touches our age or even us. To prosper these thoughts from your word tonight and let us be sobered by them and yet encouraged that there is truth and that we might be numbered among those that know and believe and proclaim the truth as did Amos. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.